This is Titus 1, uh, verses 5 through 9 is our text for this morning. It's the Apostle Paul writing to Titus. He says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. So Father, we come to your word and... We come to it knowing that it is good, that it is right, it is true. It is our standard, it is our authority that we submit our opinions, we submit our thoughts, we submit our convictions, we filter it all through your word. We thank you for how it reveals to us your plan of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it informs us of who you are and that it transforms us that we might become like you. So, Father, it's to that end this morning we ask you to move. Will you transform our hearts and lives? Transform our minds. Conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That his love could be displayed as we go from this place today. So, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You can go and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We'll be in verses 5 through 9. And you're here with us today for the very first time. Last week, we started a new message series in the book of Titus called Common Faith. Lord willing, we'll be here uh, for six weeks total. And last week, we saw the introduction verses 1 through 4, really the foundation for the entire book. Uh, The Apostle Paul in the first four verses of this book lays out basically a doctrinal statement. So last week, we got to take a look at the awesome and confusing and terrifying but amazing doctrine of election, how God in eternity past has called on those who will be saved. And it's not because of anything good that we've done or uh, because of any merit to ourselves, but because God, who is gracious and kind and merciful, saw us in our sin and he still said mine. He called us to himself and how that doctrine should produce devotion, how our lives should reflect and mirror to the world the same grace and peace that has been extended to us by God. And so last week we saw how this book has a ton of relevance for our local church family. The churches in Crete were young churches led by a young pastor named Titus. I'm a young pastor. We are a young church. There's tons of relevance for us today, Uh, but there's also great relevance for the church at large because what we find over and over again in the book of Titus is the age old plumb line for the church that we must be, we must be people who practice what we preach. So last week we saw that doctrine produces devotion, that belief has to produce behavior. It's not enough for a church just to be sound in its doctrine, though we must be sound in doctrine that needs to produce devotion. That needs to be reflected in godly lives to the rest of the world. Whenever we have doctrine without devotion or we have belief without behavior, we functionally prove through our actions that we don't have the true gospel. So so we saw last week that it's not enough for us to be sound in doctrine. This is not either or. Uh, This is very much both and. When our belief doesn't match our behavior, we betray our convictions 
and prove that we don't have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to continue in a very similar thread, and we're going to see uh, that there's two primary components that have to be in place to be a church that is both sound in its doctrine and sound in its devotion, sound in belief and sound in behavior. Now, I remember when we uh, stepped out to plant the church several years ago, about six years ago now that things were really ramping up and, and we were getting fully invested in the work that we were going to be doing here, it was overwhelming the number of resources that are now available on uh, the planting of new churches. I mean, you go to Amazon, you'll find hundreds, if not thousands of books on church planting. There's online courses, there's whole conferences that you can go to. This really wasn't the case 20, 30 years ago, but the, the amount of information that we now have available to us when it comes to planting a new church, uh, it's overwhelming. It's almost too much. It was hard to even know where to start. Uh, all of these diverse varying perspectives and opinions on how a new church should be planted, what it should be focused on, what we should be doing. And then more than that, you know, we're doing ministry here in the Bible Belt. And, and so while many of us are coming from different places around the country, maybe didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, generally speaking, the majority of people who are going to walk through our doors on a Sunday morning, we have some foundational understanding of what the church is, or at least some foundational understanding of what we think the church is. And some of us are coming from very healthy backgrounds and perspectives, but some of us are coming from unhealthy backgrounds and perspectives. And so I remember, man, especially the first two years, uh, this is true for any new church. You face this constant pressure to be doing more. Because especially those who are going to come from more established church context, they're going to come in right away and, and just start identifying what they perceive to be the needs. And so, man, we, we faced this heavy for the first couple of years. It was like, man, we got to be doing more for student ministry. Got to have more programs for kids. We got to have more studies. We got to have more classes. We need to be doing more local outreach. We need to be going on international mission trips. We need like uh, sightseeing trips to Israel. And we need to add this staff person. And we need to do this. And we need to do that. And, and there's all of these varying perspectives perspectives and opinions on what we should be doing. And so what we want to do is when we come to the book of Titus this morning, which is again, written to new churches being led by a younger pastor, Paul lays out two primary directives for the formation of a new church. These have been our directives that we've tried to follow as best as we can the last couple of years. By God's grace, we're to continue following them going forward. There's two primary directives for establishing a new church that he gives to Titus. The first was to establish order, and the second was to appoint elders. If we're going to be a church that reflects in devotion what we preach in doctrine— if we're going to be a church that reflects in behavior what we, what we preach in, in, in our beliefs— then tantamount to all of this and absolutely essential to all of this is having healthy organization and healthy leadership in place as a church family. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, what we're going to see this morning uh, in verses five through nine is that structured organization and qualified leadership are critical in, uh, components and requirements for the preservation of gospel doctrine and the development of gospel culture. If we're not just going to be sound in our preaching, but sound in our practice, the organization of our church and the leadership of our church have to be sound as well. And when we have doctrine without devotion, when we have belief without behavior, we functionally deny the gospel itself. So these are critical foundational components that are essential to any church, especially a new church. So two primary directives, establish order, establish elders. Let's look at the first together this morning. Verse five, again, Paul writes here, this is why I left you in Crete. So this is what he's telling Titus. He says, this is the purpose for your ministry now that I've left. 
The Apostle Paul, this was sort of his MO with ministry. He would go to an unevangelized area, an under-evangelized area. He would share the gospel. He would lead people to Christ. He would disciple these new believers for a few years, but then he would raise up leadership who were going to uh, take fill, fill the gap in his stead, and then he moved on to the next place. So Titus has been serving with him in Crete as some of those foundations are being laid, and Paul is now passing this ministry on to Titus. And he says, this is why I have left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So this is the first primary directive for a new church is to establish order. Paul says, I have left you that you may put things into order. Now, this word order that he uses here is driven from the same uh, Greek verb uh, ortho, which means to straighten out. So again, this is what uh, your orthodontist does. Again, where we're straightening things out. We're getting things into order that are disorganized and chaotic. And so this is the work that Paul has now entrusted to Titus. I've gotten things started, sort of off the ground, but a lot of mess here that still needs to be cleaned up. I'm leaving you here to straighten these things out. And as we're going to see over the next four weeks, there was a lot for Titus to straighten out. In just a few moments, we're going to see uh, how uh, he had to straighten out some things pertaining to leadership and the understanding of leadership within the church. Next week, we're going to see how he had to straighten out some false teachers and false doctrine within the church. Two weeks from now, he's going to, we're going to see how he had to straighten out even gender roles and confusion within the church. By the time we get to chapter three, he's going to have to straighten out uh, Christians and our relationship to government and what that should look like. And then he has to straighten out some division that's been unfolding within the church body. This is what's been entrusted to Titus. You got to straighten these things out. You got to figure this out. You got to straighten these things out. And this is the ministry that Titus has been entrusted to under the leadership of the Apostle Paul. Church, we have to understand any church, any congregation, this isn't just new churches. This is any church anywhere. A church is like a car that is in constant need of alignment. Just constant need of alignment. Man, it feels like as soon as we all get going the same direction, get going the right direction, the right basis of clarity and understanding, suddenly we wake up one morning and we're pulling right. Or now we're pulling left. And especially in a community like ours, we're a military community. Very transient community, even on top of the military. So you understand like our context, uh, 30 to 40% of our congregation changes over every 18 months. And so the work here is, is constant, man. It's like right when we feel like we've got everybody going the right direction and, and, and on the same track and everything's straightened out, it's like, boom, 150 people are gone and 150 new ones come. And praise God for that. But now it's time to realign the car. Like now it's time to get things back in, in order. And, and the church is in constant need of order, constant need of organization, constant need of alignment and clarity and definitions and making sure that we're all progressing forward on the same track. So the first directive was to establish order. And the first order of business in establishing order was appointing qualified leadership. So the first directive, establish order. Second directive, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning, establish elders. This is why I have left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So establish order, the second directive and the primary directive here is to appoint and establish elders. This word uh, elder throughout the New Testament, it's used interchangeably. You'll, you'll also see it used as the word pastor. You'll see it used as the word overseer. Depending on your Bible translation, you might see it used as the word bishop. So uh, pastor, elder, very much interchangeable titles. Pastoring is, is the primary function of those who hold the office of elder. 
Like this is what's been given to them for leadership within the church. This word in the first century culture was typically used to refer to someone who was an older man. But in the New Testament context, this is the word that's used uh, to describe those who serve as overseers and leaders uh, within the local church. So, um, so again, when we read through, as we just did a few moments ago, the biblical qualifications for someone who's going to serve in the office of pastor elder, one thing that you don't find present is an age requirement. So, so what we see just all through the New Testament is it's uh, uh, qualification for being an elder. It's, it's not so much about maturity in terms of your age. It's maturity measured in terms of your spirituality. So uh, a man being an older man, this does not qualify him to be an elder. And a man being a younger man does not disqualify him from being an elder. Being a pastor, an elder in the local church, it's a lot like the same concept as military rank. It doesn't recognize age as much as it, or as it recognizes qualifications. And we, we know that this is true because you look at the relationship that existed between Paul and Titus. Paul is now an older man. He's, he's in his, his 60s, maybe even into his 70s as he's writing these things. And Titus is probably in his 20s or 30s. And so we see the two of them uh, modeling this for us faithfully. It's not so much about age requirement as much as it is about spiritual maturity and biblical qualification. Um, now, the last couple months, our elder team has been reading together uh, a really good book by a guy named Bob Thune called Gospel Eldership. And um, it's been really challenging. It's been re you need to ask some of these guys about the, some of the stuff that we've been wrestling with uh, together the last couple of months, because it's a book that, that pushed us and challenged us and, and really got to the, the deep parts of our heart that you really don't like to go, you know, honestly. And we, we had some great conversation in the midst of all that. And, and early on in the book, he uh, has a really important section where he identifies some unhealthy or flawed models of leadership within the church. And I think these are really important for all of us to recognize because some of these are becoming more common and more prevalent uh, in the culture. And what we want to do is, is just submit all of this to the authority of the word of God together this morning. And so he highlights uh, three models of church leadership uh, that are flawed. The first one he highlights is the anointed leader model. Now, many of us have, have come maybe from backgrounds like this. The pastor, he is God's man. That's the man of God. He is not to be questioned. He is not to be challenged. Uh, he is uh, not to be held accountable. Who are we? You know, but, but mere mortals to, uh, to try and oppose the man of God. And so it's just one man, president, chairman, CEO, judge, jury, executioner. There might be a council. There might be some sort of board. But if we're being honest, there's no real accountability. It's, it's one person who holds all authority. So Thune describes the anointed leader model. This is a solo pastor who shuns peer accountability and leads with an authoritarian spirit. The second is the ecclesiastical hierarchy model. Uh, this is where leaders are outside of the flock, not on the inside of the church. This is unfortunately becoming very common in a lot of newer church plants. Um, you'll see there's uh, one pastor, one leader who leads in a church environment, but the board, uh, those who actually hold him accountable are not in the congregation, but outside the congregation. Um, generally speaking, what this ends up being, it's uh, guys who are pastoring other churches similar to that church. So it becomes very quickly this environment of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so again, there might be some sort of counsel or advisory, but there's no one in the local church context uh, that can truly hold that individual leader accountable. Third unhealthy model is the CEO board model. So the pastor of the church functions as a CEO and elders aren't really seen as pastors, but serve as the governing board that are keeping pastors and staff in check. And certainly listen, but within the role of elder, it means overseer. They're overseeing the administrative affairs of the church and the governance of the church. But we don't see any evidence in, in scripture of, of one individual person who kind of gets to serve as the leader of it all with no real accountability in the midst. 
And so church, we've, we've got to be really tuned into these things because when, whenever we have an unbiblical environment for church leadership, we are setting ourselves up for spiritual and relational disaster. I mean, it's like if we have not learned by now the trouble that happens when there's only one true pastor of the church who has no real accountability around him, like what type of disaster this can breed? We've got to be tuned into these things. And so uh, we're going to look just more in depth about the biblical approach to elders in just a second. But we need to make sure we understand something very, very clearly. Pastors and elders are not CEOs or shepherds. We're shepherds. We're not chief executive officers. If we're the chief of anything, we're like the Apostle Paul. We're the chief of sinners. And that's what's been entrusted. And the problem is we now have this glamorized celebrity leader culture. Sometimes it's the fault of the pastor. Sometimes it's the fault of the congregations who support them. And we just elevate people above everyone else. We so quickly forget this word pastor means shepherd. Have you ever seen a shepherd doing his work? Is it glamorous? No, it's messy. It's arduous. It's hard. It's laborious. I mean, it requires constant attention day and night. And we have such a disconnect culturally right now about what we think about this office of pastor elder versus what's actually revealed to us in scripture. And so we have to be abundantly clear. Pastors and elders are called to serve as under shepherds to the good and perfect shepherd, Jesus Christ. This is not my church. It's his church. This is not our elders' church. This is the church of Jesus Christ that he purchased at the cost of his own blood. And we've been entrusted with the stewardship of that. And we will be held accountable more greatly on the last day than anyone else with how we worked with that stewardship. Like, like that, that's something that I, I have to wrestle with a lot. Like I'm going to be judged at a higher standard than everybody else. And, and when we have a disconnect between what we culturally say about this position versus what the Bible actually has to say about it, what we're setting ourselves up for spiritual disaster. And so I want to talk through just very quickly here, some biblical foundations for elders in the midst of this. I'm going to talk about uh, some things about our local context that'll maybe give you a little bit more insights uh, on how our leadership is structured here. So uh, we see that uh, through the New Testament that the local church should be governed by a plurality of elders. Supposed to be governed by a plurality of elders, meaning more than one. This is the instruction that Paul gives to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete. What, to appoint an elder? No, to appoint elders in every church. This is what we see in Acts 14, 23. This is Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The New Testament always speaks of a plurality of elders. We have to understand that there's no biblical precedent for one single lead pastor, senior pastor, bishop, overseer, elder, whatever you want to call it, who has all unchecked authority over everybody else. There's no biblical precedent for this whatsoever. And so you need to understand it even about our context. It, it would not be accurate, even though I, I kind of like Titus, you know, I kind of stepped out to plant the church and get things started. It would not be accurate for you to leave here today and say that Taylor Burgess is the pastor of Christ. Community Church. It would be accurate to say Taylor Burgess is a pastor with Cross Community Church. Because within our leadership environment, like I'm one pastor among other pastors, plural, on our staff. And, and our staff pastors, we are elders along with uh, a majority of lay elders on, uh, on that side. 
And so it's, it's interchangeable for us to say that we have staff pastors and lay elders. It's also uh, accurate for us to say that we have staff elders and lay pastors. So the, these words are used interchangeably. And so my role even here as lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's not owner of the organization. It's not general manager. It's not even coach. It's more like team captain. It's, it's lead among equals because the local church is to be governed by a plurality of elders. And we do this under the authority of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Second, the New Testament draws a distinction between various types of elders. This is what we find in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, let the elders, plural, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So this passage of scripture, this is really our foundation for what we would call vocational ministry. There's going to be some who, this is our livelihood. We've committed our whole lives to this and, and that's how we're gonna receive our support is through the ministry of the message of the gospel. So we see from these verses, some are going to do this work vocationally and some are gonna do this work voluntarily. And then within this passage too, we, we see a bit of a distinction. That word, especially uh, those who labor in preaching and teaching gives us insight that not everybody is gonna be primarily gifted in the preaching and the teaching. Uh, just, you know, some of you I'm, I'm sure probably come from uh, a Presbyterian background and you you may be familiar with the language of teaching elders and ruling elders. Now, we don't love that word ruling here. That, that's not our favorites. Uh, it is a biblical word, but it's the way it can come across where we're not huge fans of. So we tend to use language like administrative elders. And that's generally how our elder team is structured. We've got some uh, who focus more on the work of preaching and teaching the word. And we have some who focus more on the administrative oversight uh, that's involved with leading a local congregation. So the New Testament makes these distinctions uh, between various types. Next, we see that elders are, are ordained and appointed by other elders. Again, I say this with, with all due respect to congregational models of church governance. Um, there's no moral imperative in the New Testament that requires a congregation to vote on its pastors and elders. The, the pattern all through the New Testament, it's the apostles, it's the elders who appointed and established other elders. That's what's happening in Crete. Yet Paul, the apostle who appoints Titus, and it's Titus who then appoints the elders who are going to be serving in those local congregations. The, the closest example we might have, if you were going to make a case for voting, might be Acts chapter 6, um, where there are uh, basically deacons who are appointed to fulfill a specific function in that congregation. Um, but even that, it was the elders, the apostles, who gave them the instruction to choose from among them who would fulfill that service. And then they served excuse me, under the authority of the pastors and the elders who were there. This is 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So what we see through the New Testament, it's elders who are appointed among a plurality of other elders. Then fourth, and this is where we're going to spend pretty much the rest of our time together this morning. The Lord calls qualified men to serve as elders. We're going to camp out here for a few moments because just like the doctrine of election uh, that we got into last week, like we're, we're getting into what is historically, especially recently over the last 50 years within the church, been some very controversial territory. And, and, and so listen, it, it's been kind of funny, like this morning, first service and even second service, like some of you read ahead, like I asked you to do in the email before you come to service. And, and some of you read this morning, you're like, oh, oh we're going there today. And, and I got it on the way in for most services, like, hey, I'm praying for you, praying for you. I just want you to hear me say it out loud, like, I'm not scared of this. And we should not be scared of this. 
that this is the word of God that has been given to us for the flourishing of men and women and for the flourishing of the body of Christ that he calls his church, like the doctrine of election, that these things are not meant to scare us, they're meant to strengthen us. And God has designed from eternity past a good and perfect plan in creation for the flourishing of men and women within the body of Christ. But before we get into this territory, before we read some verses here that are gonna create some tension in a lot of our hearts and we just kind of rip that bandaid off, like let me just say this out loud for, for all of us together, okay? I'm gonna be the first person in line to tell you that the verses we're about to read have been horribly abused by the church to the detriment of women. So hear me say that out loud. As we get into some tense waters, I'm gonna be the first to tell you that the yes and amen, like these verses have been used in some terrible ways, some terrible, terrible ways to the suppressing and the oppression and the beating down of women in the name of the word of God. And listen, that is not the will of God. So before we even get into it this morning, I just want you to hear me say these things, but as we're gonna see in just a moment, our solution is not to get rid of good doctrine, it's to get rid of bad teachers. And, and that's what we see in the qualifications of a pastor and elders. So again, uh, two passages of scripture. We're gonna look at these today. We're gonna come back to them in two weeks, okay? So deep breath before we, we read, because we're gonna read these and we're gonna feel some things, okay? And, and we're gonna, gonna press into some, some, some difficult places here for just a moment. I'm gonna explain the context and a little bit of what the Lord intends behind what's written in his word. God's good and perfect design in creation is that he has ordained men to lovingly, graciously, and humbly lead and shepherd in their homes and in the church. That, that is what God has ordained in his word. And the, the two primary passages of scripture that tend to be most controversial uh, around this, the first is regarding the home in Ephesians 5.23. Paul writes, the church at Ephesus, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior. And then in terms of leadership within the church, this is 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 13. Again, very controversial passages of scripture here that we're gonna talk about in just a second. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is within the gathered church. It says rather she's to remain quiet for Adam was formed first than Eve. It's quiet in here, isn't it? We can breathe. We don't have to be scared of these things. And here's what I want us to see here this morning. I recognize that these two passages of scripture are seriously at odds with where we're at as a culture. Again, like when we read these verses, the first thing that comes to our minds, we're like, gosh, that sounds oppressive. That sounds restrictive. That sounds paternalistic. And again, the, the, the secular world like hears stuff like this. They're like, man, what are you trying to set us back 500 years? That this is a threat to progress in our society. Well, I want to talk about that for just a second in, in terms of how the secular culture will see this. Because uh, I want us to see that our secular culture isn't progressing quite the way it thinks it is. Okay, so um, this was two weeks ago. This example came out of Florida. So you've got uh, someone who is born biologically male. Uh, you know, grows up as a man, enters into uh, special forces, so a highly trained warfighter within the military. Um, now a transgender identifying as a woman. And a couple of weeks ago, enters into a women's mixed martial arts event. Now, if you're not familiar with MMA, it is a violent sport. I mean, it's punching and it's blood and it's, I mean, it's, it's intense. It's knockouts, uh, small gloves, not big padded boxing gloves. It's kicking, it's martial arts. It's a violent, violent sport. And so naturally, uh, this biologically born male who has a training in special operations who enters in wins. And so the picture that you see, you know, that, that's kind of made the headlines is he's on the ground, you got a woman in a chokehold, there's blood all over the mat. And so let, let's talk about what's actually happening there for just a second. 
in the name of tolerance, so follow with me here, in the name of tolerance, we now have men physically beating women in the public sphere, calling it sport, celebrating it, and we're calling it progress. I'm going to say out loud what pretty much all of us probably are thinking but are too afraid to say this morning. That's not progress. That's insanity. If you care about women, you will be vehemently against that. That's not tolerance. That's not progress. That is wicked, ungodly insanity. And we've got to stop being comfortable with this and just kind of letting this exist because it's an absolute distortion of God's good and perfect design in creation where men are called to lead and to shepherd and to protect and to cherish and, and, to, and to value. And that is the opposite of everything that we see unfolding in that picture, yet somehow we're calling it progress. So again, let, let's just put the secular culture over here. They have a zero moral authority to tell the church what should and should not stifle progress. I mean, just none whatsoever. But here's what we run up against in the church, is that even within the church, that this good and perfect design and creation that the Bible has been so abused and misused by the church, that we've kind of pushed that design to the side. Because what happens sometimes in very unhealthy, unbiblical contexts is you take passages like Ephesians 5, you take passages like 1 Timothy 2, and men use the word of God to oppress and subjugate women. It becomes domineering. It becomes authoritarian. Man, there are contexts where these, these verses of scripture about wives submitting to husbands and men exercising authority in the church, that these have become a cover in so many ways to, to, to gloss over spiritual abuse, to gloss over physical abuse, to gloss over sexual abuse. Where, where women come to the church, they're asking for help. They're, they're telling this is what's happening. And the instruction they're given is go home and submit to your husband. Listen to me, just so there's no question about our church family, if a woman sits in one of our offices, we're, we're mandatory reporters legally, and discloses physical sexual abuse, our, our call is not to her husband to say, hey, love your wife better. Our call is to the Beaufort County Sheriff's Department. He's going to submit to that authority. And, and so hear me, when I say it clearly this morning, any man who is using the word of God, any pastor, any elder to, to oppress, to subjugate, to, to have a domineering authoritarian spirit over women, he is in sin. He is worthy of rebuke and church discipline and if unrepentant, excommunication from the body of Christ. And certainly any man who holds these convictions and practices these things, he is not qualified to serve as a shepherd in God's church. But this has been so abused that, man, we, we hesitate with these things, these idea. But, but listen, go back and read the full context of Ephesians 5. Read the whole chapter. What does it go on to say? What's the instruction that Paul gives to men? He says, husbands, love your wives. And how are we supposed to love them, men? As Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for his church? He gave himself up for her. And so we, we need context here. Listen, a wife submitted to her husband assumes a husband who is submitted to Jesus Christ. Husbands, we're called to love our wives, our love for them. It, it's, it's not the walk through the door and I'm tired and I worked hard all day and I'm going to sit here and you're going to serve me. It's not that type of authority. It's the type of authority that Jesus models the night before he went to the cross, where instead of his disciples washing his feet, he insisted that they sit down while he washed theirs. It's a selfless, self-giving, I would die for you. That, that's what women are being asked to submit to in Ephesians 5, is a husband who has said, I'm going to put my needs before you. I'm going to do everything I can to protect you and to cherish you and to nurture you. I will lay down my life. I will die for you. 
Like that, that's what women are being asked to come under. It's like, ladies, I feel like this is a good opportunity. Like go home this evening and man, you kick up the feet. You're like, you heard the man. <laughs> Husbands, it's that type of authority. It's the authority that insists that we serve them. And, and again, that's part of what's so messed up within the church. Whenever we see pastors as CEOs and not as shepherds, we miss this picture. Our job is to give ourselves up. Our job is serving. And listen, we know that this idea of men leading in the home and in the church, like this isn't the result of sin. This isn't the result of fall. This was God's design and creation. You go to a Gen Genesis chapter two. This is before Eve is formed. And it's to Adam that God gives his word. And he gives instruction pertaining to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You go to Genesis 3, and yes, it is Eve who eats of the tree first, and yes, it's Eve who gives it to Adam. But when the Lord shows up to the garden, who does he hold accountable? The man. You know why? Because he had failed in his primary ministry and responsibility of lovingly leading his wife in the word. And so listen, what happens is you, you look at 1 Timothy 2, and again, it's, it's, it can be uncomfortable in particular talking about uh, women not having authority over men in the church. Like, well, what does Paul intend by this? Because, you know, some are going to read that passage. They might disagree with what I'm saying this morning and say, well, you've got to understand the context in Ephesus. You know, women weren't educated, didn't have the same educational opportunities. They didn't speak the same languages. Um, and, and that's why it was told to them, hey, you can't have positions of authority. But that was unique to Ephesus and, and doesn't, doesn't apply to churches today. But here's the problem with that argument. I understand the sentiment behind it, but here's the problem. Paul does not root his argument culturally in Ephesus. He roots it biblically in Genesis. He says of men leading in the church, why does he say that that's the case? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's pointing back to God's good and perfect design and creation. So church, understand that this is why we don't have to be afraid of this. When we understand it rightly, when we gather together as the church, it's meant to be a return to Eden. It's meant to be a return to a time before sin entered the world, before men and women were striving against one another. When man had been given this God-ordained responsibility to love his wife and lead her in the word, and he had failed and he had forsaken this. And so men leading within the church, you know, just the same way like a, a week ago, we uh, reflected on September 11th. What are the two words we say every year as we remember September 11th? It's, it's never forget. And so when I or any other man gets up in here and preaches on Sunday morning, this is our way of saying never forget. Men, we will not fail again. We will not forsake our God-given responsibility to serve those that he's entrusted to us through the ministry of the word. And so when we gather together for worship, we're returning to Eden. We're being reminded of a time before sin entered in. And men, we are recovering where we failed. Where we failed. We're recovering where we failed. God's entrusted this to us, and it's, he's given us this ministry of, of graciously loving. It's self-sacrificial giving for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's what's been entrusted to the ministry of the local church. And so we ask the question, okay, then, then how do we prevent that from happening? Like, how do we prevent having a culture where the word of God would be abused and used to harm others instead of helping them? Like, how do we keep this from happening? Again, the solution is not get rid of good doctrine, it's get rid of bad teachers, and, and the best way we do this is to eliminate bad teachers from becoming teachers in the first place. And the way we do that is by looking at the biblical qualifications for those who serve in the office of pastor and elder. 
So we're going to do this very quickly here as we close out this morning. Um, we've got just a few more minutes here. We are coming back to this next Sunday. So where we're leaving off this week, we're going to start out again next Sunday morning. But uh, Paul lists for Titus, hey, here are your qualifications. And then next week, we're going to see what are the disqualifications. Those two very closely mirror one another, so we're going to quickly look at it this week. We're going to come back to it again next week. Here are the qualifications of those who serve in the office of pastor or elder. Paul says they must be above reproach. So these are men of integrity with a sterling public reputation. There's no accusation that, that currently exists that could cause serious harm to them or to the body of Christ. He must be a husband of one wife. Brother's got to love his wife. He's got to cherish her. Husbands, our wives should be flourishing and growing. They should love Jesus more because they're married to us. We should be devoted to them. We shouldn't be letting our hearts wander and our minds wander and our eyes wander. We are devoted to one woman completely and totally with our whole selves. Uh, having believing children, the word for children here, techna, this is used to refer to children who are within the household. So this is particularly young children. And so please, please hear me out this morning. And I ask for your mercy in this for our pastors and our elders. Our kids are going to sin. If you don't believe me, I will be glad to turn my children over to you for, for about uh, five days, you know, at any point in time at your, your liking, and you will see this firsthand. We are begging you to not expect our children to be perfect. And what we commit to you is that we're going to do everything within our power to ensure that our kids know, love, and follow Jesus Christ. But please don't put that pressure on our children. An impossible expectation. Our children are going to sin. They're going to stumble. They're going to fall. But we, as pastors, as elders, we have to be doing everything we can to point them to Jesus Christ. Elders can't be arrogant. So there's no overinflated sense of self-importance or narcissism. It can't be someone who's a know-it-all, uh, who's incapable of being told that they're wrong. It can't be quick-tempered. It can't be someone who's a drunkard, so no substance abuse issues. It can't be someone who's violent, so a bully who's constantly running people over. It can't be someone who's greedy for gain. So someone who's just a lover of money, who's using the office of pastor and elder to accumulate more wealth for themselves, has to be someone who's hospitable. So they have warm, approachable presence, and they open up their home for the hospitality and service of others. Has to be someone who's a lover of good. I love this one. It's not just doing the right thing, but someone who loves to do the right thing, who delights in doing the right thing, of high integrity. Elders must be self-controlled so they don't easily give in to sinful lust or passion or desire. They have to be upright, meaning we're pursuing God's standard of righteousness in our lives. Elders must be holy. Now, uh, this isn't the word holy that we typically see in Scripture that means set apart. This refers to someone who's, who's pious, who's seriously devoted uh, to their spiritual formation and uh, growth in the Word of God. It has to be someone who's disciplined. So their emotions, their impulses, their thoughts and desires are under control. Elders must hold firm to the word. Scripture is his anchor and he doesn't let go. Elders are to instruct in sound doctrine. So it needs to be someone who is a student of the word, who is devoted to faithfully handling and teaching the word. And, and on the other side of that equation, elders must be able to refute sound doctrine. So elders have to be willing to, to, to confront and to rebuke when necessary. I've always loved how John Calvin has said of pastors, um, pastors and elders need two voices. They need one voice for calling in the sheep and they need another voice for driving off the wolves. Pastors and elders in the body of Christ have to be able to do both. If you add in from 1 Timothy 3, a few more qualifications. Elders must be sober-minded, so it has to be a person of good judgment. They have to be respectable, meaning that there's someone who's worthy of admiration and emulation. Elders must be gentle. I know men, men is, in, in our culture, we tend to see a word like gentle as weakness. Biblically, it's strength. We're able to communicate the truths of God's word without being overbearing Pharisees about it. 
We have to be gentle in our approach, even as we communicate difficult truth. Elders must manage their own households well. So again, it's, it's just true across the board. If a brother is passive and distant and disconnected at home, he's going to be passive, distant, and disconnected in the church. The, the home is the primary proving ground uh, for leadership within the body of Christ. can't be someone who's a recent convert. It needs to be someone with an extended uh, pattern of faithfulness in their lives. And, and this last one's interesting. They must be well thought of by outsiders. So even among unbelievers, like, man, if you're not a tolerable human being, like you, you can't serve the office of pastor and elder. You might have great respect and reverence within the church body. But it's like, but if your own neighbors won't talk to you because you're, you're like Ned Flanders or whatever, you're just a constant annoyance and overbearing and, and you're just not tolerable as a human being, like that matters. If you're gonna say like, how are you supposed to reach people with the gospel if they're not gonna give you a hearing for the gospel? And so all of this matters in terms of evaluating those who serve in this role. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Just uh, two points of response very quickly as we close up today. Again, we're going to come right back to these things next week. This morning's kind of 1A, and we're coming back to 1B. And, and especially the, the male-female distinction in the church, we're coming back to that in two weeks. These are important things for us to understand. But here, here's the first challenge for us congregationally today. The, the first challenge is to be a champion of healthy organization. I know this point could seem very tedious, and, and you know, I, I know some of us maybe come from church backgrounds. When you hear words like order, organization, that sounds restrictive, right? Like, let's just let the Spirit move. Yes. And God does that through our order. He does that through our organization. The Apostle Paul commends the church at Colossae for their good order. And so it's important that we be on the same page. Every once in a while, listen, it happens to every church. Like, we just got to get the car realigned. And it's going to happen. I mean, just as life happens and as the world happens around us, it's, it's so important for us to constantly be coming back together to realign and get on the same page. So this is a shameless plug for something we have coming up in a few weeks. Uh, covenant members of our church family, if you're, you're a member here at Cross, uh, we have a family meeting coming up Sunday, October 10th. And we hope you'll make every effort to be there. And what are we doing together that night? We're, we're realigning the car. Five years old now, and, and man, it's, it's been a while. Like some of us have been through membership five years ago or just over the last couple of years. We're just, man, coming together to be reminded of the covenant we've made with one another and to talk about things that are upcoming for us as a church, to talk about some big things that have changed for us uh, as a church, to be able to cast a vision for where we're going next. Make it a priority to be there and encourage you to register for that this week um, if you haven't. We need to be champions, all of us, of healthy organization. Good order uh, is absolutely essential for the establishment of a healthy church. And then the last challenge here this morning is for all of us in some capacity is to uphold biblical standards for leadership. You're going to see next week that elders are not above accountability. We're not above rebuke. We're not above being challenged. Like there, there are clear biblical processes for doing these things. And yes, you know, when we look at unhealthy church environments, we, we rightly want to hold accountable the people who are leading them, but we also have to hold accountable the congregations that tolerate them. And this is a two-way street. So, you know, my challenge this morning for the brothers in here who serve as pastors and elders in our church family, it's, it's, it's the challenge for us. Again, we, we've been diving into these things very deeply the last few months in particular, but strive to do and to be all that God has called us to do and to be. To do as Peter said, to faithfully shepherd the flock of God that's among us. Not under compulsion, willingly, lovingly, graciously, humbly, gently. The challenge is for you as a congregation. Listen, hold us accountable to these standards. Listen, I realize that the type of risk I put myself at this morning, the type of risk I put our pastors and elders at this morning, 
but, but I, I am bound to, to the word of God to challenge you that you would be compelled to examine us in accordance with God's word. To hold accountable. None of us are gonna be perfect. We're gonna sin, we're, we're gonna make mistakes. So I mean, if you're looking for Jesus, we're not him. But what we hope will happen is even sometimes as you see through our flaws or if you're seeing through the flaws of maybe of other unhealthy leaders you've had in your life in the past, what we hope will happen is you'll see through all those flaws to the perfection of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. That you'll be reminded your salvation's not in me. It's not in Nate who did the reading earlier. It's not in Dustin. It's not in Michael. It's not in any of our staff. It's not in any of our elders. It's in Jesus alone. And we would strive to be people that, that have a church environment that mimics and reflects the gentleness and the graciousness and the mercy and the kindness of God shown to us in his son, Jesus. So just bow your heads with me this morning as we close out our time together. We're gonna come together to the table for the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. What's the Lord pressing into your heart this morning? We, we come to the table in need of confession of sin, repentance of sin. And so this morning, as we sing, as we respond, as we reflect, I just encourage you, be honest, be honest in your dealing with sin before the Lord. Then maybe you need to invite the Lord to heal some really bad experiences you've had with bad leaders in the church or bad teaching within the church. Lay that at his feet this morning. Just invite his healing. Let's all come to him in confession. Let's come in repentance as we prepare our hearts to respond. So Father, we come to this table this morning remembering your son, Jesus, the good shepherd who did not lord his authority over us, but who gave himself up for us. Whose blood was shed, whose body was broken so that we could be made whole. Who insisted on serving us in all of his power and authority. We submit to him this morning. We surrender to him this morning. We ask for his will to be done in our lives today. So Father, as we come to the table, as we repent, as we confess, as we reflect, as we respond, be glorified in this place. Be glorified by the praises of your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.